0: Amen. Well, hey, good morning. I, uh, I, I love the new year. Um, I should tell you where we're going to be. Habakkuk 3, because we're going to be kind of going through this uh, pretty systematically, and I want to make sure that you, you have time to catch up. So Habakkuk 3, and while you're doing that, I'll tell you that I, I love the new year. I love uh, everything that we're talking about as a church. You know, next week, Andy is going to launch a new campaign, and it starts with a preaching series, going to talk about this idea of seeing the world through God's eyes, and and I'm excited about that. I'm excited for all the new opportunities and and all the potential. Uh, I'm also really grateful that Christmas music is done. Don't get me wrong, I love Christmas music, you know, no, no hate mail. I love Christmas music, but so do my kids. And which means that, that Christmas music for the, the, the season of Christmas is on in our house or in our car 24-7. They love Christmas music, and and evidently all of my children have, are, they're all hard of hearing, it's weird, um, because they love to listen to Christmas music at volumes that cannot possibly be healthy for any human person. And so we have this one room in our house that's our playroom, and, and they love to go in there and they turn the music up, and it, and, it, and it starts innocently, okay? They, they started at one volume level, and then they're so excited, and they love singing, and so they start singing with it, and then they have to turn the volume up a little bit more, but then they're singing louder, and then the volume goes up even more, and back and forth, it just escalates and escalates to the point that these are reaching decibel levels that, that I can I can only hear that, you know? It, it's not like so high that I can't hear it. It's I can only hear that. And Carrie and I are like yelling at each other to be heard in completely different parts of the house. And so what I've found is the only way to get the volume down and to stay down is I have to go in. And, and the first few times it goes like this. Hey, guys, can you turn the volume down? Let's just crank it down a little bit. But then it eventually escalates back up again. And the only way to keep it really down is I have to go in not as dad but as dad. You know the difference? And you go in and you're like, hey, I'm not kidding around here anymore. Turn the volume down. Dad is not kidding. And if that doesn't work, your mom is coming. So, (laughs) that usually takes care of it right there. She's not in here. I call her the Wolverine. She's small and fierce. All right. The prophet Habakkuk is a man who understands volume. He understands the volume of the world and how loud it can get. I don't know if you've noticed, but we live in a world that it seems like the volume is on the increase all the time. It just keeps escalating and escalating and escalating, and it's not just like politicians. It's not just people yelling back and forth, but you just look at all the pressures and the stresses and the problems that are both out there but also within our our own lives and with our own families and it seems like every year it just gets a little bit louder. The volume level just goes up a little bit more and we feel that pressure and even right here within the church we just feel it just it, it creeps in this burden, this pressure, this stress and it just gets louder to the point that it's all we can hear. We can hardly hear ourselves think. And I think that one of the reasons that it becomes so loud, even here in the church, is because we have lost our sense of awe for God. See, what I found in my own life is that there is an inverse relationship between my sense of awe for God and, and my stress level in life. Have you, have you noticed that? that? That when God is very small, and he seems insignificant then suddenly my problems feel very, very large. They get very loud. They feel insurmountable, impossible, both my problems and the world's problems. It's like, what can possibly go wrong now? But when, when I reflect on the greatness of God, when I find myself in those moments of worship and in awe of him, then the volume level comes down. And see, as a church... We know that, and yet it is so easy to become so distracted by the volume and the noise and the chaos and all of that out there and also within ourselves that we forget and we no longer notice the very God, the almighty God who is right here in our presence, who is with us. And the prophet Habakkuk, he understood this. This is a man who who experienced Incredible problems, incredible stress, incredible pressures. I mean, here's a man who understood just how loud the volume could get in someone's life. I hear, here's someone who is a prophet to a nation that is rife with corruption and violence and injustice. And so he goes and he prays to God, God, when will you solve this? When will you take care of all this injustice that I'm seeing To which God says, hey, don't worry about it. I'm going to bring Babylon, this really evil empire. And they're going to come in and they're going to punish you. It's going to be fine. And Habakkuk's like, wait, wait, wait. That's not what I had in mind. That's not solving my problems. It's just making them worse. And if you're here the last two weeks, Kevin did a beautiful job just unpacking this this incredible conversation in the first two chapters between Habakkuk and God. And God. And when we come to this final chapter, what's so interesting to me is that God has not solved any of Habakkuk's problems. Habakkuk's problems have not improved and they've not changed. But Habakkuk has. His tone is completely different. It's though the volume level has just decreased. And we're going to look at a prayer this morning and a vision that he has of God that is so great, it's so great, that it drowns out everything else. For the simple reason that he is once again in awe of his God. Listen to his prayer. Habakkuk 3, verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in all of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. And so Habakkuk, he, he's praying here, and, and buckle up, because we're going to be going through this entire prayer and this whole, this whole section here. And, and we're going to do it kind of in pieces, so just get ready. It's not how I normally preach, um, but it's just so powerful. And so understand that what we're going to find here is that he has this reflection in mind, okay, throughout his prayer, and he is thinking about the great and awesome deeds of God that are exemplified most powerfully in the Exodus. So you all remember the Exodus. This is when God moves in power and he pulls his people of Israel out. He pulls them out of oppression and bondage, and he, he uses plagues, and he... He um, sends all kinds of horrible things on the Egyptians. They finally let his people go. And then what does he do? It culminates where? At the Red Sea. And he leads his people across on dry land. But the Egyptians, as they follow him in, the waves crash down and they're drowned. And so throughout this, you're going to hear these allusions back to the exes, back to this, this one great movement of God in rescue of his people. And so here he's praying I have heard of your fame, God. I know the stories. I stand in awe of your deeds, and now I'm asking you to do it again. Babylon is coming. God, I'm asking you to rise up and to save your nation, to save your people just as you have in the past, but then he ends with this curious remark. Did you see it? Right at the end. In wrath, remember mercy. Now, now why would he say that? Now, some people think that, that Habakkuk is praying, okay, God, bring wrath on the Babylonians and give us mercy, but, but actually, there's good reason as you read this to think that, that actually what he's saying here is God, even as you bring wrath on the Babylonians, because I want you to deliver us from them, remember mercy. Remember mercy for your people and for our enemies. Which seems strange, doesn't it? I mean, you think that he would just be praying to God, God, these Babylonians, they're gonna come in here, and so just bring fire down upon them, and no mercy. But that's not what he, he says. In wrath, remember mercy. Why would he pray that? I think we're gonna see. Verse three, God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. This word Selah, if you're, you, you've recognized it from the Psalms, it's only found in the Psalms and here. And we don't know exactly what it means, but it has to do with, you're reading something that is so profound, something so profound, some truth in the text, that it's like it takes your breath away for a moment, and you just have to pause, just, and just reflect. And so he begins, he says, God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. He's describing seeing God in this vision. And remember, he's referring back to the Exodus. This is in the back of his mind, in his imagination, And so God is moving across the plain of Edom on his way to deliver his people. And these are geographical sites where God would have crossed over. And his point is that God is on the move. And he uses this unique name, the Holy One of God. And it's strongly associated with God's incomparable power, like his distinct power over and against all other so-called deities. In other words, nothing is going to stand in his way. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. Verse four, his splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. He describes God's radiance and his glory and his beauty and his magnificence. Here comes God. He's giving us this majestic vision of God and all of his radiance. Verse five, plague went before him. Wait, what? Pestilence followed his steps. This feels like it's taken a turn, doesn't it? Habakkuk, where where are you taking us? Where are you taking us? Verse six, he stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. See, what Habakkuk describes now, this this is dark and foreboding, like the onset of a storm. And he describes plague and pestilence. These are, again, associated with, with Exodus, right? And he describes them here as these companions that go with God. And he's describing them as God's judgment that is inevitable. And is unyielding. It's unstoppable. And it's terrible. You see, Habakkuk's vision here isn't just of God and his radiance and his glory and his majesty, but now he's also showing us a picture of God's power and wrath And judgment, this oncoming storm that's brewing. This power that just by his very presence causes the nations to tremble and the mountains to crumble and the hills to collapse so that everything that feels permanent, it gives way before the everlasting God. I saw the tents of Cushan in distress and the dwellings of Midian in anguish These are Bedouin peoples, and again, they would have been out on the plains, and they would have been the first to see God coming, bringing this storm, and they're terrified. They're not even who God is aimed at, and yet they're terrified out of their minds. They're like dogs on a busy highway. They're like, oh my gosh, get out of the way, because here comes God, and he's a storm. Verse 8, were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? It's describing as the Egyptians came into the water and the waters crashed over, it's like God is just trampling the waters with all of his army as these Egyptians are drowned. You uncovered your bow, you called for many arrows. Habakkuk is watching this onslaught of God's righteous anger and judgment and he's asking this question. Do you you see it? The question is this. He's asking, God, why Like, were you mad at the water? Like, what's going on here? Now, it's a rhetorical device. He's going to answer the question later. But it's like, this is so terrible. He's raising the question, God, what are you doing? Why all this terrible destruction? Such to the point, and it doesn't stop there, excuse me. End of verse 9, you split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed, torrents of water swept by, the deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Again, we see a picture of the exodus, but also this coming judgment that is so terrible that it's as though nature itself is breaking apart. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. The sun and the moon stand still in awe. It's like time itself is holding its breath, watching God as he comes. Verse 12, in, anger, in, in wrath you strode through the earth, in anger you threshed the nations. So we have this picture of God as a warrior and he has taken up arms. And he is striding across the earth to the battlefield. And as he goes, even, he is trampling the nations. He's threshing them. And again, we're left with this question, God, why this terrible destruction? What is this all about? And finally, in verse 13, he gives us the answer. You came out to deliver your people to save your anointed one. God is coming in righteous judgment because his people are in danger. He's coming to rescue them. And now it gets really violent. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. Selah, oh, this is powerful. With his own spear, you pierced his head. And when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. Do you see what he's describing here? It's like the enemy armies are crouching and waiting and they're like, we've got these, we've got God's people. We're gonna slaughter them, we're gonna wipe them out, we are gonna devour them. And just at that moment, God shows up on the scene and he takes the enemy leader and he crushes him. And he takes his own weapon. The the enemy has a spear and he takes it away from him. He disarms him and then he takes it and he drives it through his skull. You didn't know that was in the Bible, did you? And then, depending on how you read the Hebrew, he either takes his dead corpse and strips it naked in the ultimate of humiliations, or he guts him from top to bottom. It is a violent, gory, and brutal scene. This is the wrath of God in judgment. And then Habakkuk closes once more, looking back to the Red Sea. You trample the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. It's no wonder that Habakkuk prays for mercy. Because he knows just how awesome and terrible the wrath of God. And it's so terrible, in fact, that Habakkuk, you notice that he, he doesn't celebrate. He doesn't dance around in exuberance. But instead, how does, he, how does he close? Verse 16. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. It's like the reality of God's judgment, His wrath. It is so terrible that for Habakkuk, even the thought of it, it makes him physically ill, and he can hardly stand. And yet, I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Have you ever wished that someone would get what they deserve? Yeah, have you ever thought, man, I just wish that person would get what's coming to them? You know, that idiot who cuts you off in traffic is such a maniac. It's like, God, just just bring fire. Just, you know? Oh! They would just get what they deserve. How many of us have had people in our lives who have hurt us And wronged us, taken advantage of us, and abused us. And how often have we wished, I thought, God, just give them what they deserve. God, just bring your judgment upon that person. Give them what's coming to them, because then we'll win and they'll lose, and it will serve them right. Any of you been there? But see, when God's judgment actually comes, we won't be celebrating. We're not going to be dancing at the sight of all those poor people who had it coming. No, we will be the only place that makes sense, trembling in worship on our faces before the Almighty God. I remember remember the disciples, and they're on the, the boat with Jesus, and the storm comes up. Do you remember the story? And here's the storm, and Jesus is asleep in the boat, and the, the wind and the waves, they pick up, and, and it's this terrible storm, and the disciples think, we're going to die. We're going to drown right here. Jesus, why don't you care? And so they wake him up, and Jesus stands up. He walks to the front of the boat and says, be still. And the wind and the waves, they stop. And what did the disciples do or, or better yet what do they not do you know what they don't do they're not like high five high five chest bump yeah that's not what they do is it no 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 they just saw Jesus stand up and calm the wind and the waves and they go oh oh who is this who is this who is this even the wind and the waves obey him. And they are terrified. Because God isn't some cheap conjurer of tricks, as Gandalf would say. He doesn't work for you and he doesn't answer to me. He's not a genie in a bottle. He is the Lord Almighty, maker of heaven and earth power beyond all measure. And the only response that makes sense when we see, get even a glimpse, when we recognize the might of our power and of his righteous anger is to fall to our knees in awe. Several years ago, I was uh, in Guatemala for a missions trip, and um, while we were there, the organization that we were with brought in this pastor, and he came in, and he, he preached on the prodigal son, and it was a, a, a brilliant sermon because I've never forgotten it, and you know, the key to a brilliant sermon is you drive that final point home, and man, he drove it home. I've never forgotten it. It was amazing. He did a fantastic job, heretical, but fantastic job. I've never forgotten it, and his final point was uh, verbatim, quote, God is not a judge. God is not a judge. He made just say it over and over. God is not a judge. He is merciful. He is merciful. He's merciful. He is not a judge. Half right. Because God is merciful. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. God desires that every single person will come to a saving knowledge of the truth. God is absolutely merciful, but God is a judge. God is holy and righteous, and he cannot tolerate sin. God is both merciful and just. And, And listen, we need him to be both. We need him to be merciful and just. So on the one hand, we need God to be just. We need God to move in judgment because we live in an evil world. We live in a world that is like Habakkuk's day, rife with corruption and violence and injustice and evils of all kind. And so we look forward to, and we should look forward to the day when Jesus will return and he will set all things right and there will be a reckoning. God is a judge. And listen, some of you need to hear that this morning. Because one, some of us, we need to repent because Jesus is going to come back. And so whatever we think that we're getting away with, whatever we think, it doesn't really matter. Understand that there will be a day when Jesus comes back and we will stand before him. And we need to know that. And also, though, we need to know that Jesus is gonna come back because some of us, most of us, we have been hurt and we've been wronged and we have suffered at the hands of other people And we need to know that one day, one day, God has heard our prayers and he will come back and he will set all things right. But that day will be terrible and awful for those who don't know him. And so we also pray for mercy because we of all people know that we're forgiven. Of all people, we we know that we deserve wrath, that we deserve God to pour out his anger upon us, and yet we have received mercy in the form of the cross that we did not deserve. See, it's at the cross that we see God's mercy and his justice fully on display. God's judgment poured out for sin on Jesus in our place so that we could receive mercy that we didn't deserve. It's for this reason. As a professor of mine once said, a Christian never struts. There's no place for gloating. There's no place for smugness. When that person finally gets theirs, that person finally gets what they've got coming, there's, there's no place for this because we know, of all people, we know the price that was paid for our sins. And when you know that, it turns your own volume down as well. Habakkuk closes with one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. You hear what he's saying? He's, in our context, he's describing economic ruin. He's saying, look, when the stocks crumble, and they fall, and the businesses fail, and there are no jobs to be found, and, and people are going around homeless, He says, even when that happens, I'm going to trust God. Do you you see that? Verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. He says, we live in an unstable world, world, and yet God is going to make our feet sure, and he's going to lift us up to the highest heights. But, but do you hear his prayer? He's saying, God, I know this is coming. He's not living in a fantasy world. This is coming. God is not taking away his problems. Suffering is coming. Destruction is coming. Violence is coming. The nation will suffer. The economy will crumble. People will starve. He knows all of that is coming, and yet he says, I will trust you. I will trust you, oh God. I don't know what problems you have this morning. I don't know what pressures you feel. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's something within your own family or your own life. Or maybe it's when you read the news and you look outside at all the world's problems. And I don't know how loud that volume has become in your life. I don't know what the decibel level is in your hearing, but I know that it can become a roar. And I know it's only getting louder. But we serve an awesome God. We belong to an awesome God. We belong to a God who, in a garden, prayed, God, I know, Father, I know that suffering is coming. I know that persecution is coming. I know that I will suffer and die. You're not even taking those things away from me. I know that I will suffer, that I will be crucified, that I will be killed, and yet, Father, like Habakkuk, I trust you. And it says that Jesus He was taken, and instead of calling down judgment, instead of hurling threats, someday you're going to get yours. Instead, he entrusted himself to God the Father, the one who judges justly. And God the Father, when he saw his son suffer, and he saw his son die on the cross for your sins and for mine, and he saw his son laid in the grave, taking on death that we deserved, God the Father, he took up arms. And he marched on to the battlefield into the very grave, unrelenting and unyielding and unstoppable, and with his mighty power he raised Jesus from the dead. That is how awesome our God is. And he took him and he put him on the highest of places, so that the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the praise of God the Father, we serve and we belong to an awesome God. And I don't know. I don't know what you're facing this week. I don't know what you've been facing for months maybe and I don't know how it's eating away at you and how loud the volume has become but I'm telling you the only way to turn that volume down so it stays down is that we have to revive our awe in God. We, we, we have to turn up the volume of our worship and we have to drown out all those other voices. Do, do you see that? Do you see God in his mighty power who poured out his love for you. Do do you see God in his awesome greatness and grandeur and yet became one of us and walked in our shoes and died for you and then rose again in power and now, even now is waiting to come back with his kingdom. Do you see that? Because the only way we're gonna turn the volume down out there is if we turn up the volume of our praise and our adoration for our great God who is awesome. And who saves. Because we of all people know. Of all people we know. That there is nothing. Nothing. As the apostle Paul says. There is nothing. Neither death nor life. Nor angels nor demons. Nor present nor future. Nor any other powers. Nor height nor depth. Nor anything else in all of creation. There is nothing that will be able to separate us. From the love of our great and awesome God. Selah. Father, you are beyond our comprehension in your greatness and your goodness. And you've poured out your love on us in measure that we cannot begin to comprehend. And yet, Lord, it is so easy for us to become distracted. It is so easy for me to be caught up in the wind and the waves and all of the noise and all of the chaos out there and forget that i belong to the almighty god before whom nothing can stand father as a people as a church we ask that you would increase our awe for you in this coming year lord that we would be a people of worship a people of praise that we would taste and see and then when we would drink deeply of who you are so that it would reshape our hearts and our minds and our lives that we would be people who are unfazed. that we would be as though people for whom the world is just on, on mute because we are so captivated by your greatness and your goodness Lord that, let that be true of us let that be true of us in Christ's name, amen